Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 280. So I've got an update on my adventures in plastic injection molding. Uh, so for those who've been listening for a while, I've been kind of working on a project, getting some uh, parts plastic injection molded. And as I kind of go through the process, I'm sharing what I'm going through. Uh, so maybe you guys can learn something or maybe not do the things that I've done wrong, which luckily have, hasn't been significant. In fact, um, but aren't, aren't you supposed to learn from your failures? So have you really learned anything? Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking with my contact at the plastics place, and um, and he was mentioning, he's like, hey, this has gone really smooth, uh, and it's we really haven't had a lot of problems. Um, so so what? I actually have a handful of show-and-tell stuff. So, so Hold on. It's kind of worrisome when the expert is, like, surprised nothing bad has happened yet. Well, I, I mean, I, I originally, when I first came to him, uh, or came to this company, I was like, hey, this isn't necessarily my first rodeo with doing injection molding. It's just, just this is the most complex that I've done. Mm. And so um, he wasn't worried or anything like that, but uh, it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, cool. We, you know, maybe there's a, a tiny bit of hand holding that needs to be done here. And, uh, and it's gone well because everything that they've asked for, I've done and I've done quickly. And that, you know, that's just really helpful. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, it's helpful when they're right down the street too. You know, actually, one of the things also that was really helpful at the very beginning when I gave my design to them, um, I was pretty explicit about the things where I'm like, look, these are the dimensions that must be like, I have to have these. And then I was pretty explicit about like, all these other things, we can we can change or modify or do whatever. And so I gave them a playground to which uh, they can change the manufacturing because actually, you know, this goes to a lot of things that Parker and I've talked about before. I'm not the expert in injection molding. They are. So I started off by saying, you're the expert. You tell me what to do and we'll, we'll make this work. And it's lo and behold, it's going well. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm knocking on wood right now. Hopefully they, this whole thing doesn't just crap the bed here. But, uh, so I've, I've got some parts for some show and tell. Um, for those who don't know, we do a live stream of the recording of this podcast every week. So if you hop on our Slack channel, we usually give information on that. Or if you follow Longhorn Engineer or Analog ENG on Twitter, we usually tweet out the links to come and, and visit that. So we'll have pictures of this in our show notes, which you can see on uh, the Macrofab website. But if you want to see it all live, join us for the uh, live streams. So here is one of the parts that I have made. Uh, it is basically a four-legged piece of plastic that's 10 millimeters by 10 millimeters by 10 millimeters, and it's got a nice fancy little spring mechanism on the top, uh, such that you can um, uh, act. This is used as an actuator to press on a snap dome on a PCB, effectively. So all said and done, I'm just designing all the parts of a tact switch, uh, custom. So uh, I've, I, in our show notes, Parker, I've got uh, some pictures of the um, uh, of my step file. If you can throw that up, such that uh, the Twitch stream can see it. Here's here's a uh, test PCB that I made. It's just a, a grid array, a four, uh, four by four grid array that I can put uh, these actuators on. And these are the footprints that the actuators or the the snap domes connect to. So the way this goes is um, there's a snap dome gets put onto the 
the footprint, and then there is a uh, uh, a plastic film adhesive that gets pressed over this. And in the end result, the the or the the final um, product, we're going to have the snap domes placed on a, an adhesive sheet that we can peel the whole sheet off and then stamp it to the board. But as of right now, I'm just for prototyping. I'm putting each snap dome on with tweezers and putting one little piece of sticker on top of it. So once once you kind of put it all up into an assembly, you get something that looks a little bit like this, which is basically I, I showed a PCB that has the footprints and then here's the uh, an assembly which has a 4x4 grid of these plastic actuators. And uh, are you able to hear this? Okay, I don't have my gain turned up enough, but they're nice and clicky and, and snappy. So uh, the actuator uh, presses against the snap dome, which is down on the board, and uh, you get a, a custom switch that, that we can customize, like the throw of everything, but we can also customize how hard it is to press. Now, it's funny, but, uh, but here is one of the biggest things. Be because this is a, a musical instrument, uh, playability and feel is almost the most paramount thing, but, but really the, the ability to take your finger and run it across a, a string of. Oh, and like hit all four at once. Yeah. Because, uh, in the main product that we have, uh, the array is 16 by four and we want the ability for your finger to just swipe across a row of 16 and turn all of them on or turn all of them off or toggle their state or whatnot. And that's one of the biggest things that uh, we've been trying to do is get it to the point where you can run your finger across it. It doesn't hurt your finger. It won't rub your skin off and uh, you actuate all of them. And it's working fantastic for that. Um, I have on this assembly here, I have different uh, dome strengths on there i think i have 260 gram and then over on the end i have 400 gram and the 400 gram is is painful uh it was it was sort of a test and it's just way too much like 400 gram and and something high like that i would i would um i would make that uh like say if if this was an industrial gear that was going outside and i knew that there was like a tech that had to wear gloves yeah uh, to, i would put something like 400 or more because that's like it's a ka-chunk kind of switch they're, they're going to be using their thumb right their right gloves. and they want to feel it they want to make they want to know they, they get that feedback but it's just like running my finger across a group is just that hurts <laughs> so in fact um the 260 gram press is probably even a little too much. I think I might drop that to 150, um, because the hundred or that 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 gram press or that that force required to trigger the the actual dome, um, th you have to add the uh, however much force it takes to move the spring on this actuator. So uh, 150 is probably closer to like 175 or 180 once you stack those together, and I think that'll be just enough that you feel it, but also uh, not enough that you get fatigued by doing it too much. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting uh, that in this kind of situation, the playability of it matters a lot because it's a musical instrument. You want to make sure that it feels good because uh, the product can all fall apart quickly if the user's like, oh, this product works great, but it feels like crap. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that'll just absolutely kill it. I mean, that's the whole... like picking up a guitar the whole point is well point number one is how cool you look and number two is how well it feels when you play it 
Yeah. Actually, you'd be surprised. Um, the um, the di- uh, the difference between guitars, like, in fact, there's two right here. Uh, the uh, the difference in guitars is huge. Like, if you play guitar enough like and pick two of them up, like, they can feel like completely different instruments. Um, so, so in this actuator, this is, was the first round of prototypes that we actually got shot. And there was a few issues with these. And I want to uh, talk so about one, one how we question went is, what material is that made out of? This is, I don't know the exact 11 or spices of, of this one. Um, I th- think, well, okay. So it, I believe it's polycarbonate, but it's, but it's mixed with something else. And, and one of the things that's nice about these is, uh, because it is a spring mechanism, uh, I want it to be flexible, but return to its original position as much as possible. And you can see, I can, I can just flex and crush this thing and it pops right back. Oh yeah. And that's, that was a big kind of, um, win on these. Cause I want these to last virtually forever. Um, and, and an average user might press this, I don't know, a hundred thousand times, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but, but I'd like these to last a million presses is really what I'm shooting for. Now, the way that these were originally shot, uh, in the mold led to a handful of issues with them. So it's because it's an interesting design where it has this center pole, the springs around it, and then the four legs outside, um, the, where the plastic enters the mold dictates quite a bit, um, the end result. And, uh, so I brought this up in a previous podcast and I got a bunch of recommendations from people, uh, about how to solve these issues. So the first issue was that the, the center pole itself, the very top of it, let me see if I can hold this up to the screen. If you could see, there's a little bit of a divot. Uh, in the very top. So uh, the top is actually concave a little bit where I was hoping that it would be uh, a little bit more flat or maybe even convex. Convex might feel better as you run your finger across it, whereas concave, you, you really do feel it. It's not pronounced, but it's enough to see it, you especially feel you it. could see the reflections off of it. Okay. Uh, and, and that was due to that center pole contracting as it cooled. Uh, so... At the same time, that center pole, uh, as it as it cooled, uh, a void um, was created. I guess you could say uh, we, I call it, I call it the bubble, but it's actually a vacuum on the inside of this center pole. And normally, that wouldn't necessarily be an issue for something like this. However, we have these backlit with an LED underneath it, and so when they get illuminated with the LED, it, it's kind of like a void highlighter underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can really see it. So those are the, the kind of the two major, I, I say major, um, they're not game breakers, but they're things we wanted to fix. So uh, those are the kind of the two big things. There was a third thing that, that luckily was, was really simple. Uh, on two of the legs, these smaller legs here, uh, it's, this thing is so small, it's, it's really hard to see. But that's where we put the ejector pins that push the uh, the part out of the mold. And uh, the ejector pins were just not spaced inward pros- uh, far enough. So there was extra flashing on the uh, end of those legs that I really need them to be flat because that sets the dimension off of the PCB as it sits down. 
So uh, luckily, that's a really easy fix. We can just push the ejector pins a little. We're actually going to embed them a little bit further into the device such that if there is any extra flashing, it doesn't cause it to sit higher off of the PCB. Now, as for the concave uh, top and the void in the middle of that center stem, uh, luckily, there's a really simple fix that we've come up for it. When, when I originally gave this uh, off to my uh, injection molders, I said, you know, you guys choose the best best situation or the best manufacturing plan for this. And they went and, and did everything uh, based on the sides of the uh, the part. So the gate, the point at which the plastic enters, enters on the side of the uh, part. But what that means is the plastic actually has to flow through the legs of the spring to get to that center pole. And that uh, that is it ended up causing the issues. Uh, with the void and the concave. Basically, we, it's, uh, there's not a lot of pressure there and not a lot of heat. Right, right. And and it cools from the outside in, and that uh, that just leads to some problems. So I just asked them the other day, I was like, can we move the gate such that the gate is on the center pole? So it goes from the pole out the springs to the legs because I don't care too much about the legs. I care about that center pole uh, being dimensionally accurate and uh, being able nice. to transmit light. And uh, they looked at it again, and they're like, oh, yeah, we can actually do that. And the chance that it's going to contract and the chance that there's going to be a void in it is, I'm not going to say virtually eliminated, but they're pretty confident that both of those things will be taken care of with that. So luckily, the two biggest issues with this don't even require a um, model change or uh, whatnot. So they just have to move the mold or the, the gate for where the plastic enters in. Um, so they're in the process of adjusting things right now, and hopefully in two or three weeks I'll get some more of these. Um, at the same time, these are just a little bit too translucent. So we're going to go to a, uh, a matte nylon that will still transmit some light but uh, be diffused all the way through. And that's more of what I'm looking for. I want it to glow. I don't want it to like beam light through it. You don't want it to be a light pipe. Exactly. It's not a light pipe. And uh, so there's, there's sort of, there's different ways of, of addressing that. You can texture the surface such that the surface diffuses the light, or you can choose a different material such that the, the, throughout the entire uh, device the material is diffused and I went with the the second option I think that's going to be better than texturing because if we find out we don't like it then we can go back and texture but yep. if we texture the mold then it's game over we'd have to start over if we didn't like yeah, it start with a new mold and I want the top of this thing the part where the user's finger touches I want that to be smooth I don't want that to be textured so uh, so l luckily things look like they're turning out well I hope this next round is uh, this got us really close to what we're already wanting. If we fix these two problems, I think anything past this would just be polish and icing on the cake. Looking forward to it. Yep. So I went down to my uncle's place down in Alvin, Texas to set up those, those electrical boxes for his brewery. Right. Yeah. You've been working on that for a few months, right? Uh, not off super and on. long. But yeah. Yeah. Not, not uh, probably only a couple days worth of actual work. Just most of it's been waiting for parts to show up and waiting for time for because he also runs the restaurant. So like he needs the day off to like spend time with me setting stuff up. Um, so we actually got that all set up. 
Let's see. I got a picture here. Ooh. Oh, and my uncle actually replied. There we go. So I, I, oh, I built nice. the two electrical boxes on the left. Cool. Uh, I'll post this picture into our show notes. Um, but this is it all running uh, using, uh, I think we're, we were firing all four coils at the same time. <laughs> 20,000 so <that's>, watts. <laughs> yeah, 20,000 watts. So we, nice. we put in two uh, 240 50 amp uh, sockets to handle it at all. So. Are those uh, so there, there's three pots in this picture? Is this uh, 15 gallon, 20 gallon? It's a barrel system. Oh, wow. Okay. Nice. That's big. Yeah, it's a big system. Yeah, that's you're not going to be lifting that. You're going to be pumping no. that. <laughs> no, no. Pumps move all the liquid around. Yeah. I don't, um, I, I, I lift my five gallon system and I don't even like doing that. No, I, I put in a, a crane in mine, my, my garage, so I didn't have to lift stuff anymore for my brewery. Oh, yeah. So the, so what we did is we set everything. This was actually a Memorial Day weekend. Set all the boxes up, got all the wiring, cut like, cut all the uh, cables. So, cause I basically, I, I brought everything uncut so I can make the cables to length. Same thing with the hoses. Um, and then we just filled them up with water and boiled it and made sure we could basically fire all four elements at once to make sure, one, the solid-state relays weren't going to cook themselves, and two that the uh, wiring that the electrician did was all good. And everything was good. Nice. I was pretty happy. Um, so the next steps are going to be doing a mock brew day, but clean it at the same time. Basically brew with lye to make like a 2% solution of lye and uh, heat everything up, cycle it, just do like a mock, like, okay, do these the hoses process. go here, yeah. these go there, make sure everything's working right, and then brew a batch of beer. Nice. To be the first time that, because um, that's that, it's actually a um, a uh, brew pub, and so they haven't brewed beer since like February twenty twenty. So, do you fun. guys know what your first uh, brew is going to be? I I have a huge list of all of his ingredients that he still has, and so I'm going to make something based on that. That's probably just going to be a pale ale. Yeah, um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, he needs to sell something. He needs to sell yeah. the, sell the beer. You're not yeah. going to make like a jalapeno pumpkin triple ale. Ooh. <laughs> well, you might like that, but I bet you his regulars With wouldn't. Pineapple. <laughs> oh, pumpkin pineapple jalapeno. <laughs> Gross. You would drink it. Yeah. Once. <laughs> um. So yeah. I, um. I think it's gonna be. Cascade. I, I was looking at his hops list, and I think this Cascade. What's what's three C's? Cascade, Citra, and Centennial. Centennial. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to do a, a a three C pale ale, something that be we can brew a batch of it, make sure it's good, and he can easily sell it in his pub. So. Yeah, that's cool. Nice. That'll be fun. Uh, working yeah. on a. That's probably the biggest uh, brew you've done, right? Like in terms of volume. Oh yeah, for sure it will be. Yeah, um, I'm more worried about like that's just a lot of liquid. That's a lot of if one thing goes wrong, that's a lot of beer that can go bad. Yeah, and a barrel of beer to make is probably I don't know what two hundred bucks, three hundred bucks. Yeah, about two fifty. Yeah, so it's actually not that bad, right? But it's mostly time. Oh, that's also the good thing is um, his old setup. Basically, they could only run one element at a time. Um, each oh. barrel had one element in it. 
Oh, that 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 makes things take a lot longer. Yeah, so they had to preheat everything the day before. Okay, preheat everything the day before to get everything hot enough. Oh God! So, um, we were able to basically take room temperature water a whole barrel. So a barrel is like thirty three gallons or something like that. Mm. Um, a barrel of beer because apparently a barrel of oil is like fifty two gallons. But a barrel of beer is like 33 or something like that. Imperial measurements. Just <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> I think that's what America says to the rest of the world. Uh, just, yeah, don't, just worry don't worry about, about it. it. <laughs> just convert it. <laughs> um, the, uh, um, we, we did that in a little under an hour. Room temp to boil. 33 gallons in an hour. Yeah. That you, you were you were dumping a lot of juice into that water. Well, ten, uh, eleven thousand watts. So yeah, so you have two elements in it now, right? Yeah, each, each barrel's got two elements, and I have it all set up to where, um, when you because when you're doing your first heat up, you have to you have to heat up your mash water and your hot liquor tank water. So you're basically effectively heating up like sixty gallons of water. Right. Um. Well, not that much, but rough estimates. It's more like. 50 but whatever anyways um so you ba- so we have it set up to where you can do that by basically filling up your mat your mash water and the hot and the boil kettle heat that up while the hot liquor tank is also heating up so you can do both at the same time uh so you can use uh 22,000 watts <laughs> and then my uncle's like and i was like hey if this is not enough we'll just put another box in and run <laughs> Run a third Run element. Thirds. But that was plenty. We were able to heat up in an hour, and uh, it wasn't too big of a deal. I've so. seen some uh, some of the kettles at um, at some of the bigger breweries, and they'll have seven, eight, nine elements hanging in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, when it comes down to it, it's all time. Because time, time is money. So, um, yeah, the faster you can get up the temp and then down in temp as well, uh, the better. Oh, the radiators at the big guys are like they're as tall as you are. Yeah, and that's actually one thing is his his uh, plate chiller is little tiny dude. Um, it's about the size of a, a sandwich box, I guess. <laughs> so, not a bread box, a sandwich. No, box. that's a Parker Imperial <laughs> measurement. Is a is a sandwich box. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> is that the title um, of this podcast? <laughs> so. Um, looking forward to it. I'm hoping I'll get down there in next weekend or two and do the mock brew day. You know, actually, so uh, I guess that's also a good uh, good time for you to do the auto-tune on your PIDs. Yeah, auto-tune, and I'm going to calibrate it at all the temperatures. Yeah. So. I, I, I was actually doing that last weekend on my brew rig is, is calibrating everything. In fact, I had I had two RTDs from my brew rig I had two, I guess they're thermocouple, like, kitchen um, temperature probes. And then I had my multimeter with the thermocouple. And I made a whole chart of five different temperature reading things. And it's interesting to see... Um, which, which which ones actually agree with each other? Yeah, it's not which ones are right. Which It's just which ones, how close are they, is the question. Yeah, And it's interesting because, like, they're all, they all have a pretty decent spread. Um, and okay, so here in Denver in the summer, my water boils at 202 degrees. 
uh, just we're a mile Shame. up and <laughs> hey we 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 get to boiling way faster than you do <laughs> we get, you have to do a whole another 10 degrees um but luckily we freeze at the same so i just basically got a little kettle out boiled water next to it and dumped all of my probes in there and it's uh and and it is interesting to see all the all the huge spread on it and in fact one of my things i had to apply a negative 11 degree offset it was that far off 11 oh, degrees wow. yeah yeah but it but as soon as you apply that offset it works great so hmm. so the thing i want to ask about is um to the the for the mash ton the i we had the probe on the outlets. So when the wart is coming out the cycle, that's where we're picking up the temperature. Hmm. How should that be calibrated for the off where it's temperature offset? That's interesting because because when it comes to recirculating mashes, most people put the probe at the inlet. Yeah. Such that you see the temperature that's coming in and such that your PID doesn't go nuts trying to heat the bottom of your mash as opposed to the top of your mash. Well, the, the, yeah, is it the top going to be hotter or is it going to be the bottom? The top will be rises, but there's a lot of thermal goop in there. No, the top will always be hotter because your 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 hot liquor tank is trying to heat up the water to heat the bottom of the mash, and the mash is the bottom of your mash is way slower than the top. So you'll get a gradient uh, in there. Yeah, you're going to get a gradient. Yeah, I just want to know what is so putting it on the inlet is the best bet, and Mm -hmm. just and just and so so say I want to mash at 152, which is pale ale. Yeah, temperature. Just set that. Make that one fifty two. Yes, yes. There. Okay. So I was actually researching just just the other day on this. There, there's different trains of thought where if you can set your mash to the temperature that you want, and uh, just pour in your grains, your grains will drop the the water temperature because they're at room temperature, and you put them in, they'll drop your mash temperature. But if you have a good enough, fast enough pump, it should recover quickly. Now, the other train of thought is that you go a few degrees hotter. Oh, you yeah, know, no, uh, no, I'm 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 going. I always do a pre-strike temp, so my temperature is hotter yeah. to account for the grain. I'm talking about. I want to set my temperature to 152. Yeah. Um. Do I calibrate that that temperature probe to be like the middle of the mash tun or just the fluid that's coming out of that where the temperature's at? Oh, I, I, I would calibrate it for the fluid that goes in. Okay, so when it's reading 152, it's 152 for the fluid moving through it. Correct. Okay, so when I set my mash to 152, it's that. It's I don't care about what it actually is inside the mash tun at that point then. Yeah, and I don't know. I, 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 in a barrel-sized thing, I mean, it's probably worth stirring if you have the ability to stir because uh, that will kind of demolish the gradient throughout yeah. the mash. So it, it's it's tough. But, but yeah, like, I, I think I always lean on the side of calibrate to things that you can hang your hat on And so if you want the mash to be at 152, you don't want to have this secret knowledge where you have to put it three or four degrees higher. I put the probe at this one spot and that's where my 152 actually is at. Right. If you know 152 is going in, that's something you can hang your hat on because you want it to be 152. Yeah. That's a good idea. Good answer. I can easily move the probe there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. On the outlet. So if you put it on the outlet, I guarantee you your mash will be a few degrees hotter than you think it is. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Fun. Fun. 
So uh, I noticed a uh, an article pop up on um, Hackaday uh, actually earlier today, uh, and it's actually about uh, right to repair, which which Parker and I had uh, two podcasts about uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, this uh, so this article is specifically about right to repair f- um, farmers owning tractors, and uh, the the whole article is is mainly about the fact that right to repair is getting a little bit bigger and a little bit more um, widespread. And uh, NPR business had a whole bit about that. We have a link up available for that. Uh, <clears throat> on top of that, the uh, National Farmers Union wrote a whole blog post about um, right to repair. And and this isn't necessarily, I mean, it's, it's in the same category um, of things as right to repair your electronics, but mainly they're focused on right to repair uh, farmers and tractors because what's happening with uh, with companies like John Deere, um, these uh, farmers are getting charged exorbitant prices to repair their equipment. And, and in a lot of cases, it seems to be very simple fixes end up being incredibly expensive and incredibly lengthy to complete because you have to ship a giant tractor off, it sits there for a month, and then it gets a software update and a sensor gets changed and they send it back. Yeah, and not just that too. It's it's also like even if you have to get a technician out, that's actually the biggest thing. It's like the cost isn't probably too... I mean, this. This is just be putting words in someone else's mouth for sure, because I'm not a farmer, let alone own a John Deere tractor. But it looks like a lot of times where like they can't get their tractor back up and running, and they'll miss their harvest. Right, and they can't get a technician out there fast enough to fix their tractor. So, uh, in in our last few episodes, I know um, I had mentioned some some of the uh, well, I just mentioned my my thoughts on if you don't like what those companies do, don't buy their product. And I still stand by that. But uh, one of the points of these this blog post here is that there isn't another product to buy. The, uh, the They called out the three major tractor suppliers, and all three of them have this business model where um, in order to repair the thing, you have to ship it off or you have to use their sanctioned repair technicians. And so it kind of changes the game a little bit if you don't have options, if, if your only option is to play by these rules. And in fact, they, they were mentioning the, uh, um, the used market is exploding now for older tractors that can be repaired and, and don't, you know, are not computer based on every little aspect of them. The pre-touchscreen error tractor. <laughs> I mean, it's super cool. I've, if you've ever seen any of these new things, uh, they're, they're, they're crazy. Uh, yeah, Craftlag uh, wrote in here uh, in the uh, chat that uh, they're so expensive you can't buy farm equipment without some kind of financing. Absolutely. In fact, I, I saw something um, where one farm implement was eight hundred thousand dollars for, you know, probably a combine or something like that. But uh, but I bet you you know it probably links up to the mothership and you know has to have all this computer data just to even turn on and play the radio or whatnot. So. Uh, I, I, I don't know. You can I'm only not... listen to sanctioned farmer music. <laughs> yeah. It's just banjos all the time. Um, so, so this is, the, uh, you know, nothing particularly new here, but, uh, cause right to repair bills appear, um, in, uh, in our government fairly regular, regularly. But, uh, one specifically that was called out was, uh, the Nebraska, uh, legislature bill 543, which was implemented or introduced by, uh, Tom Brandt, a Senator in, um, Nebraska. The, um, it's interesting to see that this is starting to, um, 
go up to government level in the same way that it did with cars. Um, Parker and I uh, had mentioned that previously, and, and we sh- uh, we gave a couple examples of that. I'm wondering if, if uh, farm implements are just going to go the exact same way that cars and I'm actually reading the uh, the Nebraska one, and it is reading very similar to the right of repair of automotive. It's 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 right of repair for uh, agricultural equipment, right? And you start reading through it, and it's same thing. It's allowing third parties to be able to fix it, allowing people to buy the same stuff that the first party repair or the company has access to repair with that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just to find and replace, right? Documentation, you have replace your 80K, 800K uh, farm combine, right? Right. When the uh, seat adjuster goes out of whack. Well, it's tough. Like, exactly like what you were saying. If, say, you're a farmer who's just trying to make it, you have that one tractor and you're proud of it, you bought that thing and it's great, but then it goes down. Does your entire crop go bad for an entire season? Can you withstand? not having your tractor for a season if it if it does go out and i'm saying like if you have to send your tractor off for a month like can you deal with that probably not Mm -hmm. right so i don't know it's an interesting read um go check it out we'll have the link up yeah actually this this nebraska bill reads just like it because like also in here is obtaining parts tools and documentation is fair and reasonable which is really similar to the wording in the automotive one yeah, I, I'm, I'm. I bet you it's really very similar. Um, that's actually it's interesting. Um, on this topic is so my dad just got a uh, new Chevy Tahoe, um, and I went to go look to see. I, I wanted to buy the factory service manual for it because I'm gonna be the one maintaining it, and uh, once the warranty goes out, because the warranty most stuff is covered. Um. But once the warranty goes out, I'm going to one maintaining it, and it's got a fancy dancy air ride suspension. So I want to be like, okay, I want to make sure that we maintain that because that because they require a little more care than a normal spring and shock combo. Um, usually, there's like air dryers or something to drain or something like that. Some kind of filter needs to be looked at every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get that documentation. Um, what it looks like is you have to get through GM, which is normal to get in the factory service manual. And it's only, I say only, um, you get, you have to have a subscription, hmm. but you can have a short term subscription of like three days for like 30 bucks, which is really weird. Um, so how many the, things can you get in those three days? So I think you can get anything you want in those three days. Um, and then afterwards, you don't have access anymore. So it, I think what it is is you can get like the factory service manual for your car and that kind of stuff, and then all the technical bulletins and all that stuff that's current, but you won't get any of the new technical service bulletins okay. and yeah. stuff, it which is sense. fair-ish. Yeah. Um, and basically, but you can get, pay for like a whole year or whatever if you're like a shop. So if you're like an automotive shop, you would pay for the whole year. You'd have all the updates. I mean, that's that that's kind of cool because it gives people sliding options based off of their needs. Yeah. Um, so it's gonna be, it's it's like buying a book. Then basically, you pay your thirty dollars and you get the current snapshot of the server, right? Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> or database. I think that's how it works. I haven't tried it yet. I'm going to try it probably next couple of weeks just to see what content is there. For the home um, gamer, it's it's you're paying the maintenance fees. Yeah, on, on their sure. documentation. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, is that is thirty dollars a big barrier of entry for people? I don't know. Um, I don't. I haven't had to in the past buy books to know how to fix stuff that were like fifty, sixty dollars. Thirty dollars seems pretty inexpensive to have access to pretty much all the documentation for GM. Yeah, actually, come to think about it, how much does a climber uh, book cost? Um. I know Hanes was like a thirty to forty dollar book back in the day, and those never had updates once you bought it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm looking at climber. Oh, climbers predominantly motorcycles, uh, and they're between thirty and fifty bucks. Yeah. So thirty dollars for all of it doesn't seem too bad. No. For only a couple days, of course. So, but but but, but the majority of people are getting thirty dollars for one thing. Yeah, you're you're yeah. getting one PDF or whatever it is. I'm hoping it is not like a web portal and you don't have access to it anymore afterwards. Oh, that would I'm suck. Ho- I'm hoping you can download it. Yeah. We'll find out. So yeah, I might, I might have an update in a couple weeks and just be like, God damn, GM screwed me out of $30. <laughs> we'll find out though. Just you'll have to memorize it in three days. <laughs> Take screenshots. <laughs> oh man that'd be awful the millennium falcon owner's manual is 25 dollars. is there does that does that tell you the right way to fix the hyperdrive which is banging it with a hammer <laughs> yeah but but guaranteed you don't have the right spanner for it right yes you need a model three yeah you're right it totally is the, the that's awesome <laughs> There's actually multiple of them. Is it actually like an owner's manual, like a factory service manual that's actually well-written, or is it just a bunch of fluff, just diagrams that are just drawn in there? I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit of both. Probably. It would be kind of fun to read like a technical service manual that would have existed in Star Wars universe. That'd be kind of fun to read. There's the owner's technical manual for the Death Star. That must be like a couple million pages long. All right. I don't need to spend money, but I want that. (laughs) (laughs) That's super cool. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. And so back when we were having those two episodes of the Right to Repair Act, um, we were kind of, I guess, not anti, but we had good objective opinions on against and for right to repair. And so um, we did try to get some pro right to repair people. Uh, we reached out to Lewis Rossman. Um, he didn't respond to our emails. So um, if anyone else is like pro right to repair, I'd love to have someone on the podcast that is like full in pro um, because Steve and I are on the other side. I won't even say on the other side of the fence, but we are in the other end of yeah, we we're engineers that have to build this documentation and rebuild products and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so um, and we'd love to hear from the other point of view, from like a, a pro a, a, a pro consumer side of it. No, someone from iFixit. That would be fun. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if anyone out there, let us know. Yeah, what is our, uh, what's our email that people can reach us? Podcast at MacFab.com. Yeah, send an email if you know somebody. Yeah. 
Uh, so I've got, uh, I've got a little bit of a project that came in, you know, our rule about, um, can't talk about something until it's 50% done. I guess this is 50% done. Cause I got some PCBs in that uh, I'll actually be opening, um, after the podcast in our kind Ooh. of after hours with the live chat here. Um, so it, it's interesting. I've, so I've gotten to the point now. I think you've been here a lot longer than I have, Parker. But uh, I'm I'm super happy because I'm at this point now where I've built out my PCB and schematic libraries to the point where I don't have to create anything new anymore. I, I shouldn't say that. You usually create one or two new things, or maybe three. Correct. And 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 specifically when it comes to audio stuff, I rarely have to create anything new now because I have like master libraries that are great i had it's like going to like it's like going to the uh your your pcb component library is like going to the um i was about to say subway because they have all those bins but maybe like a uh a, a buffet <laughs> pretty much yeah a buffet so like, I'm gonna that you're some... very aware of everything that's on the buffet Yes. Like, you know what you like, and you know some of the things that you're not really good, at, don't really like, and some of the things you're like, I'm never going to eat that again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I had a buddy hit me up uh, last weekend, or no, it was a little bit earlier than that, but it was pretty much last weekend, who was, um, he, he basically said, hey, I'm looking, I'm looking for a 30-watt amplifier. Would you like to build me one? It's like, yes, yes, I would. I would very much like to build you one, but I don't have one. And, uh, and I, I thought about it for a second. I was like, how fast could I crank one out and just a prototype such that I can give him, uh, let him come and play it. He can tell me what he likes and then doesn't like and blah, blah, blah. But also I want one just lying around for my own prototyping purposes. So I cranked out a 30 watt power amp in an afternoon, got boards on order and now I have them. Hopefully, I can have this built up this weekend. Because, the, funny enough, the biggest problem with this is not the PCB or anything. Like I said, I, I knocked the entire electrical design out in an afternoon. It's the enclosure, which, you know, 99% of the time... I don't even have the enclosure designed. I designed the entire PCB, and I was like, I'll figure out the enclosure whenever the <laughs> PCB comes in. Because <laughs> technically, I could probably even just set this on my table and have it work if if i really mm -hmm. just needed it to get by what class amplifier uh it's a class ab it is a quad of el84 output tubes with a uh, 12ax7 phase inverter that drives them so it is uh i have a full i uh, a year ago over a year ago actually i designed an entire rack mount preamp always with the intention that i would build a uh a power amp that goes with it, but I never had the motivation because no one ever wanted to buy it. And I shouldn't say no one wanted to buy it because no one ever played on it. But then my buddy hit me up and he was like, I will pay you to build me an amp. And I was like, I will make you a custom PCB <laughs> because of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Um, just a fun little thing. It, it's, it, whenever it's funny because like projects that, you know, you want to do get put like, front and center as soon as someone is like hey i'll pay you to do this exactly you switch <laughs> you switch your gear real fast oh like that like that especially because i know now like i said in my pcb libraries i was like i looked at it for a second i was like i'm not gonna have to design literally anything for this it's it's yeah i i, I went from nothing to an entire pcb layout in a few hours i love it yeah all right so one last topic for today uh, I have an update on my resin printer adventures as well. 
Nice. So you doing plastic injection, I'm doing like polymer UV goop Deposition. construction. Yeah. Um, so I got a type of resin called Litcrete Strong X resin. Um, Litcrete's the brand. Yeah. Um, the strength. So this is like I like one of the strongest type of resins out there um, for an SLA uh, type printer. Um, the strength is amazing once it cures. So yeah, I don't I, know. I, 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 it's interesting. So SLS, uh, SLA printers are kind of weird where like when you pull the print off the base plate, you still have to like, there's some post-processing and you have to cure it. Not too big of a deal. Um, but I've been messing with, with most of it was like water wash or it was washed with uh, isopurple. Not too big of a deal. This stuff kind of needs its own resin cleaner that they sell. It's not that it's actually cheaper than isopropyl alcohol as well, so it's not that bad. Um, and it doesn't smell bad or anything like that. It's actually kind of pleasant to use. Um, the problem is you have to use an ultrasonic cleaner, and so I picked up an ultrasonic cleaner, um, and then I'll probably have a chat about that once I start experimenting more, but ultrasonic cleaners are really good at cleaning car parts. I've been finding out. Oh yeah. Um, and it's like, it's not as fast as like, let's say a wire wire brush on like a drill press or whatever, or, or a desk, uh, <laughs> but, it, but there's zero grinder. elbow grease, or, but there's zero right. elbow grease. I toss everything into a jar of cleaner and toss that thing in the ultrasonic cleaner and just hit go. And then I go do something else. And an hour later I have, like it takes rust off of parts. <laughs> How much energy is being? I mean, an hour is a parts. long time in the bath. It usually only takes like five or ten minutes. Yeah, I ran it a, a some rusty bolts and it blasted all the rust off. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's awesome. Anyways, we're not talking about ultrasonic cleaners yet. Um, this liquid stuff, um, even after all the post processing, it doesn't seem to be perfectly like you can still it like still feels brittle. But then after like sitting out for a day, it toughens up. Um, I don't know if that's something in my settings or I'm doing something wrong yet. I'm going to contact the company and ask them for any pointers on that. But once it's fully hardened, it is just as tough as the polycarbonate stuff I print. So that's nice. Um, so I'm thinking at this point, I can probably sunset my FDM printer. Um and not worry about it anymore. Probably put it put it in a box and put it on the shelf somewhere and not worry about it anymore. Nice. But I need to get a bigger SLS print SLA printer now. I keep wanting to say SLS, which is the that's centering. the NASA thing. Right? Selective laser centering. Oh, the, that's that too. I was thinking like the the, the space shuttle alternative thing. Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean SLS is is pretty awesome. If you want to make like metal gears and things like that. You, you know, oh, yeah, nice. yeah. Um, so next step is, I, I mentioned this last couple times, but next step is the chrome, try chroming. I'm putting chroming in quotes. Um, a, a 3D printed part out of here. Um, I don't know what I'm going to print yet. I'm probably just going to design like a radio knob for a car and then try plating it. So the first step you do is, is you, uh, I'm going to try doing this electroless copper plating. Um, which is very similar to the process or identical to the process that PCB manufacturers do to start plating the inside of via holes. And it like involves like etching, uh, 
was it palladium something like that on into into it it's it's a couple co- different chemical baths but it puts like only like a two tenths of a mil thickness of copper on your surface um and so then you got a copper actually copper plate on top of that with electro uh electro process basically thicken up the copper and so once you thicken up the copper you buff the copper to be nice and shiny and then um then you nickel plate that and you nickel plate it be for corrosion resistance and nickels also cheaper than copper so you can build that layer up even thicker and then i'm going to try uh caswell plating sells a kit called copy chrome because chrome plating is kind of Chromium is not a very nice element to your body. Um, so copy chrome doesn't use any of the crazy chemicals or whatever. Um, so I actually don't know what's in that. I guess I should look up the material safety data uh, data sheet. But um, they say it's fairly safe compared to chrome, which is <laughs> not saying much. Yeah, I was about to say, like, it could still be crappy. <laughs> yeah, it still be really bad. I am going to wear gloves and do it outside and have a fan and yeah. wear a respirator and all that good stuff. So, I, I'm so I'm curious. What are you What are you trying to um, What are you trying to chrome plate? Because I mean, that's a lot of work for a final product. Well, well, the idea is to prove out building new trim pieces for cars that the trim pieces don't exist anymore. That you can't buy. Oh. And so, if I have a trim piece I need to replicate, I can easily 3D model and print it. The problem is doing a 3D print is it's plastic and um, you can aluminize, like, uh, aluminize um, plastic. That's how old, like, the trim pieces inside your car are chrome-plated, or as chrome-plated in quotes. is It's actually just aluminized um, plastic. There's, a, like, one company in all of the United States that actually does that for small batches. Everyone else does it in ginormous factories, and you, you don't have access to that. But it's really expensive on the small batch scale. Um Granted, this process also is not cheap, but you can at least do this at your home, and it's actually you're actually plating real metal, so it actually will will uh, um, handle like abuse and wear. Hopefully, it should. I mean, you're basically plating metal onto it, so it's definitely gonna be better than the aluminized plastic, which will rub off if you dig your fingernail into it. Right. You you want to be able to it, take a little bit of abuse, right? Yeah. 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 So we'll see. It's going to be a fun project. So it's way better than the alternative I was trying was basically spray painting a conductive paint on the plastic. Mm. And uh, that works. It is very hard to get a good surface finish because that paint isn't perfectly smooth. And the whole thing with play, everyone's like, oh, yeah, just chrome it. The only way reason why chrome looks so shiny and smooth is because what's underneath it is smooth and shiny as well. The chrome is just super hard. The nickel n- nickel plating underneath it is also smooth, but nickel's softer. So that chrome is really hard to prevent chips and dings and stuff. So that's what the chrome's for. It also changes the sheen a bit. Nickel plating is like bluish. Got a little blue sheen to the silver. And chrome is that classic silver. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of plating though, because you got copper to go to plastic, nickel to go to copper, and then chrome well, to go to nickel. Copper to go to the plastic, and then copper on that copper. Well, okay, sure, right. Yeah, 
Now, well, I guess different years. process of copper. Yeah, different process. It's called flash copper. Uh, is the uh, next copper? That's like the copper plating step. It's called flash copper. I don't know what the difference between electrolytic. There's a couple different electrolytic copper plating processes, and the one that I have is called flash copper. I don't know what the difference is that, but we'll fight. We'll figure it out. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just copper on there, right? Yeah. All I care about is just putting enough putting enough copper onto the plastic to where I can take the plastic piece to a buffing wheel and buff the snot out of the copper and make it nice and shiny so that when I go to nickel, it's nice and shiny. And then I buff the nickel, then do the chrome and that's nice and shiny. Do you even have to buff the copper though? I mean, can't you just put it in like an acid bath and just eat off all the crap in there? Well, there's not going to be any crap on it. The thing is you want to make the the copper is not going to lay smooth. Got it. You want it as smooth as possible. Got you it. want to make it smooth as possible. And the 3D print itself is also not smooth. So right. you're, it's, it's where you want to attack. Because I've, I've done a lot of experimenting plating FDM prints. The problem is you have all those layers, and it's really hard to get rid of those layers in the plating process. Well, I would, I would, think, you would think you'd have to do an iterative process, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm hoping that... With the SLA style printer, I have less processing, so it makes this process. It sounds complicated. It's way more complicated with FDM, though, because you have more surface uh, irregularities to deal with. We'll figure it out. Be fun. Backyard chemistry. Yeah, backyard chemistry. You know, so last weekend I was, um, I mentioned earlier, I was cleaning my um, uh, brewing rig with um, a lye. bath basically and i was in the backyard with my welding gloves on which go almost up to my elbows and uh and like big safety glasses like i wonder what my neighbors are thinking i'm doing right now <laughs> you know they're probably just inside watching tv so nothing yeah probably but if they did look out they're like oh this guy again well remember oh man remember when i uh i made a lie bath in my uh, like a lie bathtub in my backyard <laughs> yeah. and so so people who might not have listened to that episode. That was like a couple of years ago, ago on the podcast. Yeah. Um, I was stripping anodizing off an aluminum bumper from one of my Jeeps. And it's, it's five feet wide, two, two feet tall and like six inches thick. It's like a cow trough. Yeah. So yeah, I made a wooden cow trough that was basically just a barely bigger than this basic grill for a Jeep. Filled it up with a, fairly concentrated solution of lye solution and dipped it in there for a couple hours and it ate all the aluminum uh, anodizing off, pulled it out, rinsed everything off and uh, was able to polish the aluminum. It's still, it's actually amazing how um, well that aluminum still looks. I just keep a nice, like maybe about a couple months, I just polish it and then put a coat of wax on it and it still looks better than it did anodized. Um, Someday I want to plate that that grill, though. So probably when I get a whole bunch of stuff plated, I'll throw those parts in there, too, to get plated, like professionally plated. Because that's a lot of uh, backyard chemistry to copper and nickel plate something in your backyard that big. you got to give it off to the guys who have the swimming pools of those nasty chemicals. Exactly, the swimming pools of it. Where the, the pits of, if you fall in there, you never come back out. I, I remember a, a buddy of mine growing <laughs> up, um, his father bought a Carmen Ghia. And, uh, you know, those things have their unibody. 
So yeah. you basically unbolt the body and just crane it off. Yeah, and uh, you, you can separate the what's called the pan. Yep. Off the, off the uh, off the body, and he got that thing powder coated the the body, and he had to go to a special place that had a tank big enough to do the acid dip on it. Oh, so he acid dipped the whole thing. Acid dipped the entire body of the car. It cost oh, him cool. a pretty penny, but it was it looked awesome when it was done. Yeah. As long as it doesn't get chipped, it'll never rust. Basically. Yeah, that's my. He, he babied it though, like that was his his yeah. special car. That's always uh, that's that's the one reason why I don't like. Uh, oh, we're going to go down this. We're probably like over way over time. But anyways, we're going to go down <laughs> this one last tangent for today because you brought this up. Is so a lot of people in automotive like uh, building hot rods and stuff will powder coat chassis. The problem with powder coating chassis is rocks rocks so if it's like a show car you can do it because you don't have to worry about it but the moment that that powder coat gets chipped water gets in there starts rusting and then you start getting bubbles and it will actually that powder coat will actually trap the moisture and the corrosion and that let dry out like powder coat is like my least favorite coating um just because it's just a pain it's 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 one is it's expensive and two the moment it gets chipped you can't really do anything about it because you can't repair it well, okay, so for cars, yes. For yes. a lot of other things, it's it's a great coating. Oh, yes, yes, yes. For yeah. car, cars in terms of chassis and that kind of... Inside of a car, yeah, powder coat away. Or like on wheels... Ooh, I just... Like, uh, wheels. Wheels, powder coating is fine, too, because it's interesting that you think something that close to the road would get hit by rocks. They don't really get hit by rocks because they are protected by that big thing of rubber around them. <laughs> Until you get some rash from hitting a curb. Oh, that yeah, that's different. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm working on my parents' golf cart, and one of the things is that golf cart lives in Galveston, and I want to rust-proof the frame after because I'm gonna have to repair it. Like, there's like big sections of just nothing because the, it's been rusted away. So well, repairing the salt it, air probably doesn't do good for it. No, no, it's always in salt and water, basically. Um, you got to think it's like it's Galveston, Texas. It's 90% humidity with salt in the air. <laughs> <laughs> so, so things rust in a matter of minutes. Yes. If it's not, if it's not galvanized or stainless or aluminum, it does not last longer than two years down there. And of those stainless and galvanized is the best aluminum, depending on the grade of aluminum, it'll last a long time. But if it's a, one of the lesser grades, it will eventually also it will corrode away um stainless seems to last a really long time and so does galvanizing um so what i want to do is i'm not going to weld a stainless frame <laughs> you don't have but, a few thousand already, dollars it's well it's already mostly steel anyways so i want to get it um you can get it sprayed with hot zinc so this is the coolest thing i started looking up uh, of this whole process of hot zinc spraying so you can hot dip it. The problem with hot dipping a frame into zinc is it can warp the frame. Yeah, it's really um, hot. <laughs> it's really hot. But the thing is about the uh, when you shoot hot zinc onto it, it's only hot. The zinc's only hot in transit, and then it cools down when it hits your frame. It's it localized heat. Localized heat. Um, and so how at least the ones I was looking at how these work is it, think about like a spool gun for like a MIG welder. You know, has like a, your aluminum spool gun. Um, 
But instead of that spool of aluminum, it's a spool of zinc. And at the end, it's got like two pro- like prongs that has a has electricity flowing across them, like the like the uh, tractor beam in um, in pod racing in Star Wars. <laughs> And then it shoots that zinc rod through it, and then it vaporizes and sprays super it. Superheats it. Yeah, superheats it. And then it has like an air blast that like sprays it out. Um, it's pretty so cool. So it's dangerous is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. You're shooting yeah. vaporized, super hot metal zinc. through the air. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> it's pretty rad. <laughs> Dude, uh, it, but is it is it done in a way that's like um, powder coating where you you ground the chassis so it sticks to it? No, uh, no, it just it, it just like wets zinc. the it just wets the surface. It. Oh, that's cool. So it's you, they sandblast your frame, and then they spray that. And it's only I haven't gotten quotes yet. I just seen what other people have paid online for like entire cars. Yeah, and it's about three hundred to five hundred dollars. Which is not that expensive. For it's cheaper that than powder coating. It's it's much less expensive than powder coating. Yeah, because there's no there's not that whole bake phase of. of yeah, uh, once it wets the plus. surface, it's on there. It's on there, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, my idea is I want to zinc coat it that way, and then I'm going to paint epoxy paint on top of that, and it will be good for ever, basically. Until a hurricane takes it. That probably doesn't <laughs> make a very smooth surface, though, right? It's probably lumpy. And no, bumpy. it's fairly smooth. It's much smoother than... Because um, it's like... It's almost like spray painting, except it's zinc. Except <laughs> it's zinc. just metal. Metal. Um, <laughs> so it does actually make a fairly smooth surface, but I am going to paint it with a epoxy paint to enca- encapsulate that. Um, so it should last forever. That's cool. Or long enough to the next hurricane shows up and takes it away. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's end this podcast. Yeah, I think that's a great spot. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macfab.com slash Slack. And on every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central Time, you can go to twitch.tv slash macrofab to see our live stream.